let's turn to the scriptures this morning. Uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2, and verse, uh, verses 12 through uh, 16. We're going slowly, I realize, through the book of Philippians, but um, spent a good bit of time in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through um, 11, and we could spend a lot of time, a lot more time there, and never do it just, justice, this confession the desires as a church, not just household of faith, Bible church, but the church of the living God, that God did send his son, that Jesus is equal to God, he is God, and he became a man, humbled himself, took the form of a slave of God, and laid down his life on Calvary's cross to atone for our sins, purchase our freedom, to deliver us from the penalty of sin, the power it has to rule over us, and the future hope of one day being delivered from the presence of sin itself. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to his name. He's alive. And that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our confession as a church. That's the confession and belief that gets you in and gets me in to believe that. So praise his holy name. Now we're going to look and keep going through, plodding through Philippians. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 16 this morning like we did last week and this is part two of our time together last week so could you stand with me if you're physically able and honor and respect out of God's holy word and verse 12 says therefore my beloved as you as all as you have always believed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works within you both to will and to do for his good pleasure do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become harmless, blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. That's the word of the living God. Thank you very much. You may be seated. We're working through this last Sunday, and it's really an amazing passage of scripture because the Apostle Paul who was so concerned with the churches and you see his passion and concern in every one of his letters he had genuine love for the people of God he had genuine concern for them remaining faithful he had genuine deep-seated concern about um, whether or not faith had taken root in the places where he had ministered and the last thing you want to do is look back on your life and go man that was all just for nothing you want to know that, that uh, there was profit in what you did, and especially in the spiritual realm, because the consequences are eternal. And so when you go into a city and invest your life, and the first thing you do when you go into the city is check out the jail, because you're probably going to wind up there. And you wind up literally putting your life on the line for the sake of the gospel, and you find out what's going on after your departure. You sure have a vested interest in how things are going. And the Apostle Paul, it's amazing that in verse 16, he would say that the litmus test, like we talked about last week, that the measure, the plumb line, as to whether or not his labor among them was in vain or not, was their disposition and attitude toward the Word of God. Everything that's written previously to that defaults down to that one statement, I'm convinced. It's their attitude toward the Word of God. And we talked about the fact that it says holding fast the Word of life in my version but probably it's better translated holding forth the word of life, to present the word of life. I never cease to marvel when you see a Christian granted a platform, whether it be in 
a debate or whether it be in a discussion on television. And somebody sitting in front of somebody like Larry King back when he was on, on uh, cable network news. And he'd have somebody on there. And you know where his questions are headed if you claim to be a Christian. You ought to be prepared for them. He's going to get around to asking you sooner or later, is Jesus the only way to heaven? He's just going to do it. And because he knows that's controversial and that's going to spawn a debate and phone calls and everything else. And it's going to give them the entertainment that people long for. Because those, sh those shows, make no mistake about it, are not about news or information or about entertainment. And so that's an entertaining thing to get it in play. And it's amazing to me. And sometimes if you find yourself sitting there watching, this was back when we had cable, we don't have it anymore. But I had it just for news. I'm a news junkie. Pray for me. We'll form a support group later. I have to know what's going on. It's just the way I am. Okay, and so um, we cut it off. But anyhow, that was just for the news that I had it. But you can't get news from cable anyway. But anyhow, um, you find yourself watching uh, some, a discussion take place and you just want to go, Man, I wish I could be there. I wish somebody would give me a platform like that. And let me tell you why. Not because I want to be seen or anything like that, but it's just amazing how that every time or me often when somebody's put in that kind of position, they seem to pick these kind of people who represent the Christian community. They concede our foundation. They give it up. And it's relegated, their discussion is relegated to opinion. What do you think? And I would go, I just want to scream through the television and say, you know what? It doesn't matter what I think. But here's what God's Word says. God's Word says, and I happen to believe it, that Jesus said Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And wherever they want to take the debate, and wherever they want to go, and wherever they want to talk about the suffering of Japan, or whatever, that somehow or another, you could be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led enough to get it back to God's Word. This is our authority, is God's Word. And what he's saying there is, is hold forth the word. In other words, when you have the opportunity, when you have the opportunity, present the word. My next door neighbor, and you've heard me tell this story, works for a guy who's Jewish. No, he's, this guy is uh, Greek, actually. That's his origin, but he, uh, where he came from, his family. His wife is Jewish. And they were, stand, he, he, they were debating back and forth about Christianity and Jesus being the only way and so forth. And he said to my neighbor, and they were looking at our house, they were just standing there looking at our house, and he said, you mean to tell me, he pointed at our house, you mean to tell me that that guy, that guy over there would say that if my wife does not accept Jesus, she's going to go to hell because she's Jewish. I said, listen, the next time he says that to you, here's what you say. It doesn't matter what that guy over there says. But here's what the Bible says. And the Bible says if your wife rejects Christ, she will be judged one day on the merits of her work. And she will be judged on the law of God. She will have been found guilty. And she will be punished forever in a Christless eternity in hell. It's what the Bible says, not what he says. Let's don't concede and give away our authority. There it is right there. Hold it forth. And I'm afraid all too often the reason we don't hold forth the Word is because we're not informed by the Word. The reason we don't answer based on biblical truth is because we're ignorant of biblical truth. Isn't that a shame? And we think we've got to delve into the nuances of how somebody believes. What is their belief system? You can't witness to a whatever until you know what a whatever is. 
We've used this analogy before, but it's a wonderful analogy. I used to be in the banking business, and the Secret Service is the, the, the organization within the government that's responsible for counterfeit money. They police uh, uh, to detect and prosecute people for passing counterfeit money. And we're in the banking business. We come across what we believe to be a counterfeit whatever. And you call them, they'd have a guy come pick it up, you know, make it real official and all that. You know how they train them to spot a counterfeit? Anybody know? What, Becky? By studying a real one. See, if you meticulously study a real one, when a counterfeit passes you by, you'll recognize it just like that. I don't need to know what an ism is and what the isms believe and the wasms and the isms and that and this and that and the other thing. I need to know what I believe. And when the counterfeit comes your way, you'll recognize it like that because you've meticulously studied the real one. If you study the counterfeits, all you're going to do is get confused. There are so many different variations of people who allege I have the truth. If you studied every variation of a counterfeit bill... You know, you'd just be mixed up and then it changed and the devil would change it again and the, the enemy would change it again and the counterfeiter would change it again and change it again. And all you'd be doing is running around chasing all these changes. The method of evangelism in the Christian is to hold forth the word of life. And that's what he's saying. If I've got something to present to somebody, it ought to be God's word. If I'm going to feed my family, it ought to be God's word. This is the disposition of the Christian. This is what we have to offer. This is truth. This is revelation from God. Every other belief system is made up by man. Every other one. Not this. This is revelation from heaven. It is divine. It is real. It is powerful. It, is, it cuts like a knife. It shapes the issues. It informs us of the issues. It separates the darkness from the light. It gives clarity. It gives discernment. It gives vision. It gives answers. And it takes away confusion. So if you were the enemy, what would be one of your strategies? Surely it would be, believer, that one of the strategies of the devil would be is whatever I can do to get them distracted from being anchored in the truth because I can then mess with them. Some of you in here I know come from a Catholic background. Let me say this to you. The reason Catholic doctrine is so off and so many people put up with it is because their leadership encourages their fellowship not to read the Bible. Stay away from this book. Because if you start messing with this book, you're going to find out that what we're teaching you and what's in this book are inconsistent. And we're going to have to explain that to you. How many times in this church do we beg you and plead with you and pray for you that you would immerse yourself in God's Word? Hold us accountable. We're the community of faith. And the greatest charge and the greatest mission of the church, a local church, I contend, really, is doctrinal purity. The Bible says the church is the pillar of the truth. Did you know that? That in society, the church is the pillar of the truth. Michael just prayed just then that we would come to a, a nation in which we begin to believe again that truth exists, first of all, that it's not relative to who you are and your situation and your bent, your circumstances or your environment, that relative, objective, un that objective truth does exist, that it is this, and that we contend for the faith as such. But if you yield that up in the church, then what do you expect your nation to do? Everything that our nation becomes 
and everything that our nation is now was a gift of the failures of the evangelical church in America. Every bit of it. We've sacrificed and we've been dumbed down toward the truth and we know little or hardly any of it and have little appreciation of it. And because we're at such a low ebb in the church house, that's why we're so confused and we have what we have in the White House. We have conceded. We've given up our basis of authority. We cannot do that. I can't do anything about that right now. And nor can you on a national level. But you can do something about that in your home. And you can do something about it in your personal life. That's the call. Do something about that. That does not have to be that way. And I'm going to share a couple of principles about that this morning. But let me just say this to you and share this with you. Picking up from what we said last week, I do not, and I must not, and I should not, and I dare not, and I've got to guard against jumping into this word in order to be a better father. I'm a father by God's grace. I dare not jump into this word in order to be a better husband. I'm a husband by God's grace. I dare not jump into this word in order to immerse myself in this word to be a better pastor. And I'm a pastor by God's grace. Or any other hat or any other role for you a better wife, for you a better husband, or for you a better neighbor, or for you a better employee. Will this word and the principles contained in this word make you better at those things? Absolutely. But I can tell you this. We immerse ourselves into it to know God. You want to give your kids an education? This is the education we need to give our children. How to know God. How to recognize His voice when He speaks. Where He's working. And also, you can learn from where He's not working. Put an X on that piece of the property and don't go there. If you're looking for hidden treasure, and the Bible says we're to look for wisdom as if it were hidden treasure. You know that you can find a hidden treasure by going out and looking for it and you X off where it's not so that you don't have to repeat the same mistake all over again. It is to know Him. Let's, let's look at some scriptural proof of that. Look at John 6, 63. Look at John 6, 63. You remember this. This is one of the one of my just favorite passages of Scripture in all the Bible. Lots of people are following Jesus. He gets through explaining to them, now here's the deal. In order for you to have life, you've got to eat my flesh, you've got to drink my blood. Everybody's going, that's disgusting. You know, I, eat your flesh and drink your blood? And his response to that is, let's, let's back up a little bit in the text. It says in, in response to what he had just said, it says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, that he's going to eat their flesh and drink, he, he, they're going to have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? In verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are Spirit and they are life. If we go after the Word of God just for principles, we will miss out on finding the principle giver. And that, in effect, is idolatry. 
I want, the, I want to immerse myself in the Christian life so I can have a set of instructions to make me a better whatever. Those instructions will make you a better whatever, but if that's the priority, that's principal idolatry. That is a misuse of the Word of God. What he's saying is this. You're trying to take spiritual truth and process it through carnal reasoning. What I'm telling you is this. You have to trust me and the work that I'm going to do to break my body and spill my blood on your behalf. And by believing in that, I'm going to credit that to you. I'm going to credit all the merits of my righteousness to you upon belief. And they're trying to use carnal reasoning to process spiritual truth. And that's why many of you put up the Bible. He said, but there are some here, there's some of you, verse 64, who do not believe. For Jesus knew that from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my Father. And from that time, look at verse 66, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. You know what they said? We're done. That's it. I've heard enough. There's no use in even sticking around to hear more. I've heard enough. Body, blood, you know, this is enough. And so they went and left him. Jesus' response was, come back and let me put it to you another way. Was that his response? No. He let him go. Don't come to God on our terms. He comes to us on his. And he said, look at verse, look at verse 67. Then he said to the twelve disciples, you guys want to go too? And look at this, man. Peter answered and said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to know and to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hallelujah. You have the words of what? Life. He got it. You have the words of life. If we leave you in whatever direction we go, regardless of which one it is, it will be a downhill trip. You're the God of glory. You're the one. You're the promised one. You are my Messiah. You are my Lord. And guess what? You are my exclusive hope. So what does that communicate to us about the Scriptures when we immerse ourselves in them? Remember this. Here's the deal. The deal is this. And the Bible makes this abundantly clear. In Romans chapter 3, in two parallel passages quoted from in Romans chapter 3, in Psalm 14, and Psalm uh, 58, which are psalms that are almost identical. And it says, no man seeks God, no, not one. In your lost state, you did not seek God, God sought you. As a matter of fact, as soon as I came out of the womb on October the 30th, 1961, it began a journey of running away from God. Same for you too. And so we're running hard after him, hard away from him. What does he do? He finds us, draws us to himself, convicts us of our need for a savior, tells us who the savior is, gives us the faith to repent and believe, and seals and secures and saves us forever. Hallelujah. Now, here's what happens. When that happens, the very moment that happens, the tide gets turned. And now, rather than God seeking you, you've got this opportunity to seek him. All right, you want know, text proof? Hebrews 11, 6. Go with me there if you will. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You know this verse and you've heard us quote it many times. 
Hebrews 11.6. When He finds you, when you are captured by His grace, and you're granted the gift of repentance, because the Bible makes it very clear that repentance is a gift. You just don't repent on a whim. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit to convict us of our need for repentance and give us the faith to do it. And then faith is a gift. And it's all of God and none of us. And He comes to us and transforms us. The moment He does that, now He's inside my heart. And He's inside your heart. If you're a believer this morning, you didn't come in here to the temple. You brought the temple with you. He lives inside you now. And so now we come together and we say, okay, now that God has found, sought me, the tide's been turned. And look at Hebrews 11.6. Without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That's after having been sought by Him. Now, then we, we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures and we ask the Lord to show us and take the blinders off of our eyes and let us see the Scriptures for what they are. Because plenty of people abuse the Bible. Plenty of people use it to just ferret out principles to live by. It does have principles to live by. But the Bible is not about just the plan of salvation. The Bible is about the person of the salvation. And His name is Jesus. And look what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24. Look, look, at, look at His discussion here on the road to Emmaus. You remember the context here? He's, he has risen from the dead, but the disciples don't now yet know it. They're downtrodden and sad and brokenhearted. Their dreams have been destroyed. They think their expectations have gone unmet. Oh, we followed you because we thought you were the one you were going to take over. All the promises and the covenant promises made to the Hebrew people were going to be fulfilled in you. We thought you were going to go into Jerusalem and occupy the throne of David, which is your rightful throne. And yet, you go into Jerusalem and get in trouble with the religious crowd and get killed. And not only killed, you didn't go in there and get run over by a chariot. You went over there and got executed. Brutally. And now everybody's after us for following you. Things could not be lower. And he catches these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And look what he says to them. And this is how you, search, you should approach God's Word. And this is how I should approach God's Word. Look at verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And look at this in verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in all of the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. This word was written to reveal Jesus. It contains principles. That's true. But more importantly, it contains intimate information about how to know the principle giver. And that's what eternal life is. That's the lens through which we should view the Bible. He said, you know what? Jesus actually went back and said, Moses, when the Bible speaks of Moses and the prophets in the New Testament, what's it talking about? Anybody know what it's talking about? When he said Moses and the prophets, do you know what he was talking about? Huh? The Old Testament. Because the Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And the prophets are the rest of the books in the Old Testament. So what he's saying is, he went back. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in on that conversation? And he said, guys, let me tell you this. Back yonder. He didn't say back yonder. He probably had better English than that. He said, back when? You remember when Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness? 
on the pole, and you said, and, everybody, and we instructed everybody, and the, the plague broke out, and, you, and he said, you know what, everybody that looks at that pole right now, get your children, do whatever you can, get your family, and you look at that pole, and he lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, he said, everybody who looks up to that serpent in the wilderness, he said, that was a picture of me on the cross. Three days ago, you saw me up there, and I was, that was the curse. That snake represents the curse of sin, and everybody who looks to me is saved. That's what that story was about. He said, you remember back in Genesis? Let's fan the flame all the way back to there. He said, do you remember? You, do you remember that I, 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 in the creation account, I say, everything's good, everything's good, everything's good, everything's good. And then I come across a bad one. And I said, no, it's not good that man should live, be, live alone. I'm going to make him a woman. And what did I do? He said, hey, the Bible records. This is his conversation with the guys on the road to Emmaus. He's going all the way back to there. He said, you know what happened? Adam was put to sleep by God. What did God do? He reached into Adam's side and he grabbed a rib. He took the rib and what did he do with it? He formed a woman. And he presented the woman to the man. And Jesus gave away the first bride and presented the woman to the man. And Adam went, Whoa! God, you did good. And she was Adam's bride. He said, You remember the other day when I was dying on the cross? God put me to sleep. And a Roman soldier, according to John chapter 19, went up and took a spear and he thrust it in my side. And when he thrust it in my side, the same side that the first Adam when the woman was taken out, out comes blood and water. And that blood and water was a sure sign that I was dead. And out from my side, I am going to build me a bride. And she's called the church. He said, that story was about me. And that story was about you. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. When God put Adam to sleep, it was temporary. But when God slew His Son on Mount Calvary, it was to purchase a bride. God presented the bride to the first Adam and praised His holy name. There's going to come a day when He's going to present this bride, the church, to the second Adam. And we're going to be spotless. And we're going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Praise His holy name. It only went one story after another. And he, what he's saying, what he's teaching us is, this is how you read the Bible. This is about God's redemptive plan. He shows up in every chapter. He shows up in every verse. He's there on every page. He's there on every line. And if you get to know Him and find out who He is, you'll be interested in introducing the people that don't know Him. The reason evangelism is such an oeb among us is because we are scared about introducing to somebody we hardly know ourselves. There's some new people here today. They'd be hard pressed. I'd be hard pressed to introduce them to somebody else because I don't know much about them. We'll get the social security number later. But somebody I'm familiar with and I know, and we got a track record together. And we've been through thick and thin. We've been through difficult trial, error. We've been through it. Maybe even been through conflict and emerged out of it and still love one another. Maybe even love each other better. I can say, listen, this is my brother right here. Let me tell you about us and what happened. Let me tell you what about our Lord. Let me tell you about Him. Let me tell you what He spoke to me this week. Let me tell you what He's doing in my life. Let me tell you how He's changed me. I'm not going to shut up because I know Him. And most importantly, He knows me. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let me tell you about my Jesus. 
Look at what he does further on in the chapter, Luke chapter 24. Let's stay with it for just a minute and then we'll close. Jesus goes and appears to the disciples. You remember the, remember the setting. He sits down and asks for a piece of honeycomb and some fish and eats in front of them just to show them that he's physically risen from the dead. This Jesus bodily rose from the dead. Amen? And look what he says in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with, with still with you, that all these things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. The Scripture will be to some of you, and it will remain to some of you, a dusty, archaic, irrelevant, boring book until you begin to see Jesus in it. And you begin to fall in love with Him and find out from falling in love with Him, His love for you. It will become alive. It'll become an exciting place. And it won't be a place about, Lord, I need direction. Oh yeah, that's fine. I'll get direction. No, 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 Lord. It, I, it's a place where I want to meet you. I want to meet you here. And you meet me here. Let's crack it open in the early in the morning. Let's get together and you and I have breakfast this morning before I ever have breakfast. Let's you and I go after each other. I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to know that I know you. And I cannot lead the people who are responsible and I'm responsible for to know you unless I know you. I'm sure it comes out in my preaching, but I spend far more time, far more time in the Bible devotionally than I do sermon preparation. I'm sure you're aware of that. But I do. Because I, I, I want to know Him. I don't want to know about Him. I appreciate your experience with the Lord. I appreciate your testimonies. I want to hear more of them. Sunday morning, TNT time. I love it. I love to hear how God's working in your life. But i got to tell you, I'm stingy. And I do not want to know Him through your experience. I want to know Him through mine. Your experience only stands to whet my appetite for experience with Him. On my own. That's what your experience is about and mine. And to give Him glory. But I just flat want to know Him. Look at it. It says in the law of Moses, first five books of the Bible, the prophets, all the rest of them. And this time He includes the Psalms. We went through a series one time. I forgot when it was. On Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written 800 years before the cross. It's a first person account of the cross. All the other accounts we have on the cross are about the apostles looking up and writing down what they observed. Psalm 22 is first voice. It is Jesus speaking from the cross 800 years before it happened. And he and how does it open? My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? 800 years before it happened. And that's what Jesus was saying. That's what he said. Let me tell you in the psalm. Psalm 22. Y'all go turn back there for a minute. And you got Peter and John and them, you know, and they're all scrambling around. Go, let's go back over here and look at Psalm 22. Come back over here and let me show you something. Look over here. Psalm 22. You know, back when David was saying all that and y'all were confused about it, what is he talking about? Why is he talking about suffering? Here we are talking about a Messiah that's going to suffer. Now, wait a minute. No, 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 no. We were, put, we, we were counting on a king. And here we are, got a Messiah who's suffering. What could that be? You know what they did? 
They took, this is what they did. This is how they interpreted the Bible. They took the Bible and they took the prophetic utterances, all the prophecies about Jesus and his kingship and took them literally. And they took all the, the uh, prophecies about his suffering and took them allegorically. Because they couldn't figure out. How could it be? How could it be? Well, see, the only thing that they did not know that makes sense out of that would be the cross. And the reason for the cross. But they couldn't see it. And he opened up their eyes and they went. Because Jesus said, it had to happen. I had to die. None of you will get to serve in the new Jerusalem. None of you will make it to the new Jerusalem. None of you will be included in heaven if I don't die on that cross. Not a one of you will be redeemed. I came to call them, Jew and Gentile alike, from every tribe and tongue and nation, that at my throne one day they'll all worship there together and I will purchase them by my blood. It had to happen. And so he's speaking to them over there and he's, he's, in, he's in Luke 24 and he said, you remember when I said that? Look. Look at Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that familiar to you guys? And one of them speak up in Matthew and say, I heard you say that from the cross. That's why. That's why. It had to happen. It was prophesied already. He said, oh, 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 okay. And then it says here, I'm a worm, verse 6, and no man, a reproach of man, despised by the people. All who see me ridicule me. They shoot out at the lip. They, they shake their heads saying, hey, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. He said, guys, that sound familiar? Everybody at the base of the cross, and what are they saying? Come down off that cross. Hey, if God's your God and putting trust in Him, that's great. Why don't you come down from that cross? Why would He kill you if He's such worthy of worship and you know Him like you say you do? They're beating their heads like that. The Bible says they're wagging their heads. You know what they were doing? They're saying, you're going to be doing that in a minute because crucifixion victims would take their heads and they would bang them against the cross beam to try to knock themselves out to get out of the pain. And they were wagging their heads at him. That's what it means right there. You're wagging your head. You'll be doing that soon. You'll be trying to stop the pain. You'll be trying to get out of this pretty soon. Well, bless the name of the Lamb. He didn't try to get out of it. He went all the way. Amen? Let's offer a praise offering to him. Amen? Man, what a great God we serve. Eight hundred years before it ever happened. And there's intimate detail. Not from John looking up at the cross or Matthew or Luke or any of the gospel writers looking up. But Jesus speaking in Psalm 22. Speaking out of personal experience. Here's what it was like to hang there. You guys familiar with that? Remember that? Yeah, that just happened. I just saw it. You, you, you know they got to be going, man, praise God. If that was prophesied and that was supposed to happen, maybe your king part's supposed to happen too. We'll close with this. Here's the tragedy of it all. Or it can be. Look at John chapter 5. Verse 39 and 40. See, we can be just religious enough to miss all this. We can just be religious enough to miss all this. He's talking to the religious people. Stops them in their tracks. He just got through here and was talking to his disciples. Telling them how to process everything that just happened. In other words, telling them how to read the Bible. Okay? There's a famous ministry and they, they hold up the Bible and they, they start out their service by saying, this is the Bible. It is what I say. I am what it says I am. And I have what it says I have. 
And I want to say, no, this is the Bible. And God is who He says it is. And He's gifted you with Himself. And you are because of Him. You know what we've done? We've made this a man-centered book. Let us get a hold of it for long enough, and that's what we'll do. We'll make it a man-centered book. You know what? It's a Jesus-centered book. And he was trying to communicate that to them, and that's why they couldn't see. And here's why these guys couldn't see. You search the Scriptures for the, for verse 39. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have What's he saying to him, Brooke? He's right in front of him going, hoo hoo Here I am. And all that you've read and all you've, all you've read and all you've studied in the first five books of the Bible and all the prophets' utterances, you've misinterpreted every last one of them because every last one of them point to me. And I'm standing right in front of you and you can't recognize me. Those under your care need to recognize God's activity. They need to be able to know Him, discern when He's speaking, and also to be up on when he's not they need to have spiritual discernment in a dark age that we live in especially now with all the heresies floating around and the bible does say that the devil is going to get more deceptive in the last times it does say that okay so the deception becomes more deceptive and the church is buying into it and we need to lead our children not to know mathematics we don't need to lead our children to know literature we don't need to lead our children to know science we need to lead our children to know jesus and if they know jesus they'll be able to process all the rest of it and they'll be able to filter through all the rest of it. But that's got to be the priority. That's got to be the priority. How does God work? What does He look like? How do you know when He's speaking? What does His Word say? What does salvation mean? What does the word repent mean? What does the word sanctification mean? When Jesus died on the cross, what did that mean that He imputed His righteousness to us? What are these things? What do all those things mean? And we need to anchor their faith. Anchor our faith and then anchor theirs. And then they'll have a faith that will transcend time, circumstance, and any threat that the enemy would throw against it. This is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Amen.